Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Craig Drake. Craig is a co-founder and director of Lombardi Management, a deliverable foreign exchange broker. We hope that all our listeners and your families are safe and well, and we look forward to keeping you entertained and informed through what are very difficult and unprecedented times. This podcast was recorded on the 9th of February before the market volatility. Hello again. It's a while since we last met. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, Craig, meet Paul. Paul, meet Craig. Craig, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? Very good, thank you. Very good. Brace for this storm. Uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, well. So, actually, where are you, Craig? Are you in France? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... What the fuck are you doing there? Well, I I, I bought a house here. Like, <laughs> what, what the hell were you doing that for? As with many things, it comes down to interest rates. So we'll come back to that in a bit. Brilliant. Um, yeah. So um, so I founded. I'm the co-founder and director at Labard Management. So we're a deliverable foreign exchange broker. Um, and sorry, sorry. Just on that point, could you just explain? Because I'm not familiar with that term. Deli- deliverable. So I mean, it's rather than you know, we don't. We don't trade FX. We don't trade euro dollar on a one second, five second, 30 second basis. We offer, if you're a business, you need access to liquidity. If you're an engineering firm who needs to buy parts in in Germany and China, we provide the FX solutions on the back of that. Um, if you are, if you're an equities broker, if you have um, USD equity exposure, we provide the actual currency on the other side of that to bring so it if, to So effectively, there's real cash changing hands, not exactly, just sort of yeah, speculating yeah. on bips and things like exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think, I mean, I think is kind of interesting in the way that, like, we approach between, there's, I think there's quite an interesting difference between the way that, say, you know, at, as like price value partners approaches markets and how we approach markets. We're kind of looking at things from a very different kind of side of side of the side of the spectrum, but we actually approach things in a in a similar way, which I think would be interesting to look at. Our business is based in London. We are, you know, under UK regulation, but we run a lot of it from France because we're a global business and we can be based from anywhere. So we hop on a plane to go to clients, that kind of thing. So your your clients might actually be say industrial concerns then or similar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so yeah. the re- the real world, the real world exactly, which is what I like. You know, like I've worked previously for brokers for that kind of stuff where it's all very you know trading you know dollar yen on a very short term basis. And I don't necessarily find that that satisfying. Like I find the kind of intellectual side of of why markets are moving in those directions fulfilling. Mm. But the thing that I really find, you know, that gives me pleasure from this business, and it sounds corny, but I like helping businesses to operate. And we operate a lot of the time in kind of sub-Saharan Africa and that kind of stuff where there's not necessarily liquidity. It's not like if you want to bar if you want to get your hands on 50 million US dollars. If you have the requisite amount of currency on the other side, you can get hold of that kind of cash. But if you're operating in some of these countries where, because of state intervention, because of because of state policies, because of capital controls, 
there aren't there isn't that much actual cash floating around in the in the in the system it's hard to do business in these places and something that gives me a lot of a lot of pleasure in terms of what we do as a business compared with just satting sat in front of a bloomberg terminal smashing you know trades through yeah that's that's understandable it's, 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 it's helping so, things operate you know so it's a different focus obviously it's more customer relations and macro exactly. a macro view of the market so um so why why are you in france why aren't you just you know somewhere in in the uk um, well, it's, it's, there's, there's some kind of, there is a business slant to it. There's a personal slant to it. Um, like I, I'm not necessarily somebody who's, I always, I'm not, I'm not an office worker. I, I've always, you know, I've started this farm. I started it two years ago. The problem is like, as somebody who wants to do entrepreneurial things, it's quite a difficult thing to do if you're paying, you know, London rents. London rents or London, like I was looking, I was at that point in my life where I was looking to buy somewhere in London. And I thought to myself that I'd rather be in a position where I could buy a home, have a home. And it gives me liquidity. It gives me that position to be able to, to be entrepreneurial, to be able to do what I want to start a business. It, it, it fundamentally changes the way that you do business as a startup, mm. as a founder of a business if your business decisions are so heavily based on the fact that at the end of each month, you've got a pretty huge financial burden. Yeah. Yes. But so, can you, can you have gone to somewhere in the UK though? Um, I mean, I'm just intrigued as to, do, do they give you sort of, uh, is there any sort of incentives for being in, in France? And whereabouts in France are you indeed? I'm, I'm, I'm near to, um, to Bergerac. But um, it's... I, I, it's a personal thing. I, I lived yeah. here before. I went to university here. Oh, right. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, it's also, I, I, it's, France is a kind of, is a funny country to be in as, as, a, as a fairly rabid free marketeer. And there's <laughs> quite a lot of interesting things going on at the moment. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah. What, what, what role did, did Bre- if any, did Brexit play in your decision to, to, to buy in France, Craig? Not at all. Like, not, not, not at all. Like, um, it's kind of funny. I speak to a lot of people about um, living here and about the effect that Brexit has. Brexit has, makes no difference to me um, in terms of like the, the, the criteria required to kind of live here on a long-term basis is fairly kind of it's not particularly onerous. You've got to be able to, you know, support yourself financially or have a job or any of the kind of basic grown-up things that are required. Like Brexit doesn't really affect me in any kind of way whatsoever. You know, I'm a homeowner here. I, you know, I live, I'm as well. While I'm low to use this as a definition of, of, of being a good citizen, I pay taxes here. You know, I, Brexit doesn't really affect me. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So there we go. So your your economic discipline is based on the Austrian School of Economics. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that that kind of like that I maybe share a bit here. But um, for the for the benefit for the benefit of the the, the either a certain new listener or or the layman, would would you care to have a stab at a, a sort of a, a quick a quick and dirty definition of, of Austrian school thinking? at the Austrian business cycle through the through through the economics of how business cycles occur, how the the, the consequences of excessive growth in, in bank credit, and that's I think that's particularly timely right now. You look at the skewing of 
of of of markets from low interest rates set by central banks through fractional reserve banks and the way that manifests. Um, and actually, I like as somebody who is very kind of global macro focused, who's very FX focused, I kind of wanted to kind of ask from a asset manager point of view, from a kind of investing in a UK value space, I'm kind of interested to kind of turn this kind of thing around mm. and ask how you approach things as a value investor. You know, do you use, if you want to look at, if you think that current monetary policy is destined to create a bust, if you think there is malinvestment going on within the UK markets, and I certainly think there are, there is, and you know, I think it's going to be compounded the longer we stay in this ultra low rate environment. When you invest in those markets, are you just looking for the bust side of things? Are you just sitting there thinking, well, I want to shield investors from the consequences? Or are you in do you engage in kind of rent seeking? Are you looking mm. at, you know, I think that because the, these policies are policies that I don't agree with. Mm. I think they're going to create bad things. And how do you balance the kind of rent-seeking aspect of that, knowing that you kind of think this is creating kind of malinvestment effects within the economy, but you're prepared to to kind of free ride on those malinvestment effects? I'm just kind of interested to see how you view those things. Okay, so it's all really intriguing questions um, and all the difficult stuff I'll pass over to Paul to comment <laughs> on. Um, but from from my perspective, so firstly, to, to give you the sort of the the quick and dirty definition of what Austrian school thinking means to me. So I had the the, the luck and the privilege of, of rubbing shoulders with sort of Austrian school types or classical economics types back twenty years ago. So if you like, I, I kind of had the uh, the serum ahead of the crisis in 07, 08. So that that didn't come as frankly an enormous surprise. I would define. And Austrianism, is, to, to my way of thinking, is basically three things. It's a belief in sound money, small government, and broadly libertarian principles. And so for me, the tragedy of our time is that we don't have any of those things. You know, or each of those is out of favor. So it's it's up it's up to the you know the kind of the the the, the libertarians to try and to try and put them back sort of center of the debate. And then in terms of in terms of what we do, so we do two things. We have a a global um, long only equity value fund, completely unconstrained, except that it's long only, so we don't short anything. And then we have a, a managed account service which in, incorporates global value equity, listed equity, but it also incorporates to the kind of asset preservation side of things. It also incorporates trend following funds, which we view as portfolio insurance, and it also incorporates a fairly hefty allocation to um, precious metals, and in particular the monetary metals, gold and silver. Because we also want an extra level of, sort of call it capital or currency or financial crisis insurance. To the topic of, say, the equity debate, and you're, you're absolutely right to raise these points. Um, we, I'd say, where there's a, a direct spillover into the, the Austrian perspective is, um, I mean, Mises, I think, is, is uh, we had Rory Sutherland on the, the podcast about a year okay. or so ago, and he is perhaps the only person in advertising. That has as part of his sort of pitch deck a slide saying Me Ludwig von Mises is a god. Yeah. I don't know that many people in advertising who would even know who the hell Ludwig von Mises was. Yeah. So so that was that was quite entertaining. But basically, what I would take from Mises, as far as I understand uh, him, is 
the one thing that the Austrian school venerates above anything else is the role of the central role of the entrepreneur in the economy. So in other words, the 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 classical economists don't put government first or banks first. They put the entrepreneur first, the proper risk taker. And you know, all we have to be grateful for in this world is because someone took a risk. You know, and and actually, lots of people took risks, and some of them, some of it worked, and some of it didn't. But that that for me is the the, the single like biggest takeaway from the Austrian school that basically nothing happens until an entrepreneur gets his boots on in the morning. So, given the environment that we're in at the moment, and I think this gets to the root of the the problem, um, how how do you manage your your investments or your investment decisions? And I guess this is something for for both of you, given that we can plainly see that the interest rates are being held too low. Are being what, artificially suppressed. Yes. And this is building up a problem at some point that we can't define, but yet there's a, this big party that's still going on and it's very difficult to not be part of that party. I think then you get into the distinction between investment and speculation. So from the particularly the equity side of things, you know, we've modeled everything we do ultimately on you know, the Bible for value investors, which is Benjamin Graham's the Intelligent Investor. And Benjamin Graham, who's the for people who aren't familiar with that name, he's the guy that taught Warren Buffett at Columbia Business School. So, you know, he has a bit of form, if you like. And basically Graham said that you know, I forget the precise terminology, but it's along the following lines that an investment operation is an operation that, that more or less promises security of income and, and an attractive return over the medium term. Operations not meeting that requirement are speculative. So in other words, there is an element of science to this. It's not just art. So identifying the entrepreneur is the art part, and that's subjective and soft science, if you like. But the actual identification of a decent business it can be reduced to things like quite mechanistic things like okay we're talking about listed stocks not no, not private investments so there is a there is a price for this stuff and it's set every day in the marketplace by mr market if it's possible to buy the shares of uh, businesses run by principled shareholder friendly management you have a, a sublime record of capital allocation which is the secret source that we're all looking for then what do you do you try not to pay over much for them. You try and get them at, let's say, uh, intrinsic value or ideally even less than intrinsic value. And there are some straightforward metrics you can use. PE, for example, price to earnings ratio of less than, say, 15 times. A price to book of less less than one and a half or ideally less than one times. With the caveat that you know, price to book in a digital world isn't necessarily the be-all and end-all metric. It's much more appropriate for old-style businesses like say extractive businesses that is safer software companies. Nevertheless, it's the start of a 10. So low PE, low price to book, um, very high cash flow. You know, the, the difference between what we're doing and what a lot of value managers do is we're not trying to pick up cigar butts. We're not trying to pick up deep value turnarounds. We're trying to buy shares of businesses that are already profitable, but we're just not paying over much for them. So we had a presentation to clients, to to institutional clients last week. And the, the 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 kind of the 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 million pound gorilla in the room or the elephant in the room is for the last ten years you didn't need to make any decision at all in in equity land at least you didn't make, need to make any decision at all or if you did you needed to make one decision and that one decision was buy the U S because you only need to own the S and P five hundred you needed to own any other market 
And then within the S&P 500, you need to own Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, and Google. And you could dispense with the entire rest of the market. So we have seen the most extraordinary sort of centralization, concentration of stock market returns in six stocks. And you can forget the other 494 in the S&P 500. So the, the, the disparity between growth and value is more extreme now than it was in March 2000. And I find that a, a, an astonishing statistic because I remember the first dot-com boom and it was, it was an eye-opener. Yeah. So if we look at the cycle then and come back to that, um, so Craig, you might have a, a view on where we are in, in the Austrian business cycle at the moment. But I, I think if I'm, if I'm reading what you're saying correctly, Tim, you are looking past these, this potential bust and you've positioned yourself regardless of, of what's going on, what, what is being debased. And you're looking to buy companies that are effectively shielded and therefore you have this, um, you don't need to change what you're, what you're doing because you've, you, you can recognize that the, the market is skewed towards growth and only a few stocks that have been sort of game to the upside uh, will will outperform everything. But once that changes, once the business environment changes, um, you, you've picked stocks and a, a investment sort of uh, strategy that will be not necessarily uh, immune to the the downturn, but but hopefully we'll be... there'll be something left on the table at the yeah. end of the day. So yeah. when the dust settles, there'll still be something of value there. I think that's, that's a very fair way of putting it. And uh, the most amazing, even more amazing statistic came via, I'm trying to think who it was now. I think it was um, Dimensional Fund Advisors. And we can put it in the show notes, a link to their piece of research. But it basically said, uh, this is sort of the, 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 the definition of, if you like, how things can change on a dime in markets. In March 2000, um, it sounds like we have, a, we have an extra guest on the call. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Um, a, you know, a dog is for life, not just for Nasdaq the, the, stocks. So. The, the, pod, the podcast cliche <laughs> of the dog bomb. Well, if you can have a little toddler coming in and then an Asian yeah, exactly. wife slash nanny bristling <laughs> yeah. it out, that, that would also help. So Mar March 2000, these, these, these are for a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors in the States, and they're a large asset management firm. They do a lot of research, um, very, very sort of quantitative focused. In March 2000, growth as defined, by, I think, by the Russell Russell Growth Index as opposed to Russell Value, growth had outperformed value over the prior one, two, five, 10, and 15-year periods, okay? That's how strong the, the dot-com bubble was. By March 2001, value had outperformed growth by one, two, five, 10, and 15 years. Right. So in other words, within the space of a year, the whole of history got basically erased and replaced by a different version, which was, well, actually now values back in charge. Mm. And all, all I'm saying is the, the disparity between the relative performance of growth and value is more extreme now than it was back then. So I think for people here can be patient. It's not to, not to suggest that, you know, that these, you know, stocks like Google or Amazon are going to zero, but simply a lot of those companies are so outrageously priced. And I would single out the likes of Netflix and Facebook, because partly because I can't stand Facebook, and I think Netflix is expensive <laughs> stock. Or you could you could use um, what's the other one, Tesla, as an example. That basically, what we're trying to avoid is simply, you know, we'd prefer to avoid stock owning stocks that, in extremists, are going to drop by ninety percent, and that could easily happen. So, where where do you think we are, Craig, in the in the Austrian business cycle? I 
I feel like we've painted into quite a tight little corner um, in terms of where we are in normalizing of rates and that kind of thing. And I don't really right now know how we're going to be painted out of it. Um, we've like something that kind of frustrates me a little bit, well, quite a lot. And something that, that kind of Tim touched on is within the financial sector, and like you're always told, like it's kind of, it's certainly a view that's been a bit on the wane since since the crash, but you're always told about how all these great kind of students, all these people who were great engineering students, all that kind of stuff were poached by the finance industry. And you had this kind of, you know, all these great minds who could have achieved such thing, such great things, creating this new technology, end up working for Goldman Sachs. And we're always told that you had all these great minds in finance. But actually, something that disappoints me so much within finance is how many people, well, how many people have been able to just cruise along based on low rates, especially in equities markets, how little deep thinking you kind of experience in the markets. You, t- you, like, you talk to people who are, who are managing people's money. Like they've been given quite a lot of trust. People, people who've worked hard, people who are entrepreneurs, people who've started their own businesses, who's kind of, you know, you know, sweated blood to kind of earn that money. They've trusted this money over to somebody. And these guys are just content to sit there and and they've had their jobs done for them. You could, you know, throw darts at a at a kind of list of of the, of the FTSE, of the SP. And it's pretty easy to make some money. And it, it frustrates me. Like, isn't that has always, you know, pissed me off is that people are able to cruise along so much. To, to play devil's on... advocate on that view, though, Craig, sorry to cut in there. Um, aren't they just playing the market as it is? I mean, you, 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 one could say, well, they, they are just taking advantage of the situation as it is. And it's not necessarily their fault that interest rates are being kept ultra low by the mismanagement of the central banks potentially however i would i would say that like that's applicable in the status quo like as things currently stand i think that if somebody's sat there to content to and it kind of comes back to the earlier question about how much you you kind of rent seek on the back or piggyback on the back of policies that you don't necessarily agree with you know are you just leaving cash on the table if you don't just sit and and kind of ride along on this wave Isn't that part of being an an investment manager to say, well, look, if they're going to keep interest rates low, we can just ride this trend? Yes, but my issue would be is that those people who are just sat there and not thinking about what the risks are of the continuation of these policies. Where, what, what do you do if if there is a hike in rates? If there's any kind of change in the status quo? If there is a shock to the market? You know, it kind of scares me that these people, how little thought is put in by so many people in terms of these markets. And I, I mean, I say this as a, as a, as a complete tourist in in equity markets in that kind of investing. You know, I look at everything. You know, most of the things where we view things from the kind of unwanted consequences of of, of government policy tend to be in those markets where there are capital controls, where there are where there is low levels of liquidity. But I do, but because of the work that we do and just because of general interest in markets, I do get concerned about about people's lack of, of intellectual rigor in, in, in markets. What do you think could 
trigger a sea change in the opinions of the central banks, say the Bank of England, to raise interest rates? I see. I think that might be more of a question question for Tim because I I don't really see how they're going to. I don't see where thinking is right now to get them out of out of where they are. And, and I, I would ask Tim, why should they move? Why should they move rates right now? Well, yeah, could, I mean, it could there, be there is inflation. Well, you say that, but I say, you know, be careful what you wish for. So there's a, there's a, there was a headline in the FT in December saying the Fed was considering basically raising its its 2% inflation target. In other words, allowing inflation to sort of rear its head uh, and sort of see what happens. And I just say, well, be careful what you wish for, because if if inflation were suddenly to take off, then I'm not sure it'll be easy to get back in the back in the, the bottle after the sort of genie's been released. The I mean, I've, I've made this point before, but I think it is a, an important one. The most important thing I think, the most significant thing I've experienced over the last few months was attending Money Week's Investor Money Week Magazine's Investor Conference in late November, um, and a lot of people for whom I have a lot of Respect people like Russell Napier and Daniel Hannan, you know, peace be upon him, and uh, James Ferguson, the Economist, uh, et al. We're saying, you know, the next thing that's going to happen, we're going to get modern monetary theory unleashed. And modern monetary theory, as far as I can tell, is basically a belief that governments can spend as much as they like without any consequence. In other words, but aren't it's they just... doing that now, though, Tim? Well, they are. They are doing it now, but it, it could take an extra dimension. So, in other words, the previous iterations of what we call QE were basically money. To, the crude version would say was basically money given to the banks or money given to the holders of bonds. But the next iteration would be money being parachuted into all of our bank accounts, you know, so like helicopter money or sort of time limited money or whatever. And this, this is just nuts. This is just, yeah. you know, garbage on stilts. So the idea that you can do that without having any ill consequence to the currency or to interest rates, to bond market yields, you know, to, to belief in the confidence in the system, I think is, is just naive to the nth degree. Um, as part of that, uh, the kind of spending, um, we obviously have we're not that far off the budget, and we have we have we have this new government that is apparently ostensibly, ostensibly, ostensibly conservative. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of like this, there's there are a lot of people who like that you get told about that that you've you've over the years you you have these politicians who are in governments, and you're told. By people apparently in the know that behind closed doors, these guys—they're one of us. You know, these guys are free marketers. These guys have got, you know, a copy of everything Hazlitt's ever written in their desk drawers. These these guys are true believers, and they just—they're they're constrained by circumstances right now. But given the opportunity, you know, we're going to have a free market explosion in Britain. And suddenly we have a Conservative Party that has a huge mandate. It has, you know, fixed-term Parliament Act. It has a non-existent opposition. Do you think that this is a Conservative Party? Do you think these people are going to come out of the woodwork and have the opportunity to enact these these kind of free market policies? Do you believe that this government is is ideologically believes in free markets? I mean. So, so the, 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 mood, the mood music is sorry to interrupt, Craig. That the mood music is that we're going to get lumbered with HS two. That exactly. they're now considering a mansion tax. They're considering scrapping or lowering entrepreneurs' relief, which is basically a, a rise in CGT. I mean, this is not exactly the sort of stuff you expect from a, let's say, Thatcherite government. Certainly. Exactly. 
Uh, I mean, I, I I just feel deeply skeptical. I mean, Sajid Javid, I, 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 when he became chancellor, that was like music to my ears. I thought we had somebody who, who really believed in the power of of the individual, of free enterprise, of of the dangers of the incursion of the state. You know, but so far, I've not seen anything. I feel like he's not met a, a, a kind of big government scheme. That he, that he didn't love. approve of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He is. It, it concerns me. And what, even what do you within, think they will do? And what, what what do you think the risks are to the the markets? My concern is that we have this great opportunity to to have a Britain kind of less constrained by 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 Brussels by by being within the EU, and that we could become this great competitive country. And and I actually I'm concerned they're going to squander it. I'm concerned that we have this great opportunity to show what can be done. And we're just going to get policies that are indistinguishable from pre-2008. I think I'm, I'm concerned that the next budget is going to be indistinguishable from a Gordon Brown budget. What would you like to see in the budget that, that would make you feel better about how they're managing the economy? I would like to see a budget that makes you feel like they truly believe that the individual knows best and that I want them to get out of the way of people being able to start businesses and those businesses those businesses being able to succeed. You know, I think I think the true test of whether this conservative government has succeeded isn't necessarily whether somebody in the home counties is driving a five series BMW rather than a three series at the end of this government term. I feel like the, this, the success of this government is going to be whether somebody in these areas in the north of England that have that have not voted conservative in, in generations or have never voted conservative, if somebody leaving school there believes that they have opportunities to do things or if they don't have a job, they can create a job. Um, I came back to where I live in France and and something that I've always thought is one of the great differences here between the UK and, and France and somewhere where France has got a generational time bomb is like I talked to like I talked I've got I I talked to a friend who I graduated with here in France who are still working very low level jobs. You know, I like I went to a good university. They they graduated with good grades and they'll work front office jobs. They'll work in they'll work in the local branch of Credit Agricole or they'll work low level jobs because the French the French labour market is so rigid. It's kind of like it's like Britain in the 19, 1950s, 1960s, in that if you want to go into finance, go into law, you've got to work as a clerk for a certain amount of years before you're, you know, old enough and experienced enough, not necessarily knowledgeable enough, but you simply serve the time that you move up. And whereas in England, whereas in Britain, it's so much more. I think we've got so much more of a meritocracy. You have young people who can progress and being old doesn't make you smart. Um, I also find that in Britain, we do have much more free, in Britain, you've got so much more freedom that if the opportunities there aren't afforded to you by what is, by being employed, you can create your own business. Like, and it's in that, that you, you look at French unemployment, French youth unemployment right now. So obviously, um, headline rates of unemployment in France is 8.5%. But within that, 
you see that youth unemployment is at at twenty point seven percent. That's huge. Shocking. That's shocking. And, and it, but it's actually like I like I I have my problems with France. Like I I've chosen to live here, but I don't rally around the flag. You know I you know the, 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 I think France is creating huge 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 problems for itself in the future. Um, and I think that French unemployment, youth unemployment thing is a tragedy. And I speak to so many people who who are stuck, who who can't get into the labor market, who can't create their own businesses, who not that they can't create them, that the very concept of going away and starting your own business is so alien to them. They wouldn't even know where to start. And and I find that tragic. And you, I think there's so much... I mean, France, I think, is is even further along than the UK in terms of the pursuit of of university degrees. In that, you just you know because because the way or the what do they call works, this? Is the Enarchs? Well, the, N- the, N- the Enarch is different. The Enarch is a um, basically a state school for for government workers. Right. Um, um, but in terms of everybody who has got A levels has the right to go to university, um, and so. I studied law here and it was kind of, you saw a huge like amount of wasted talent and wasted human capital because everybody was told that you could go to law school. And in my school, only of the people who began the degree, only 18%, one eight made into second year. Of those 18%, 80% had retaken their first year. And so the selection wasn't made at A-level like it is in the UK. It was made in that first year. And the, the professors delighted in smashing those people out. You know, we started in these huge lecture theatres at the start of the year, and they got progressively smaller as the year went on. And it's, it's actually tragic. You had people just getting, like, smashed to pieces through, these, through this system, and it... it in, and, in, in and what, what, go, sorry to pick up on that point, but in, in what may, way smashed to pieces? Was, did they make it too difficult for them, or what, why why were they affected by it so much? So, so I've got this theory that all that is wrong in 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 France right now stems from the French marking system. So, in the UK, in Anglo-Saxon education systems, when you write an essay, when you sit in an exam. You start with a blank piece of paper. You start with no marks. You start, you know, you kind of, you make your introduction. You gain a few marks for having a bit of knowledge of the subject. You make your two points for, two points against. You've got your hypothesis. As long as you argue it coherently, it doesn't necessarily what matter what argument you make. As long as it's coherent, as long as it's, you know, research. And you as you gain, as you go along, you gain points. And you mm. go, you get, get X amount of points. You've got a third, a bit more. You've got a two, 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 one, blah, blah, blah. And it creates this, a certain kind of intellectual rigor in the way you approach things. I would say the difference is in France, you essentially start with 20 out of 20, which and 20 out of 20, nobody gets. 20, 20, 20 out of 20 is what your professor, is the answer your professor would give. And every time you deviate from what your professor would give as an answer, oh, you lose marks. Oh, and no. that is... No. But that that that, uh, that is but that creates it creates good mathematics. So, so, that, so in other words, if you if you lack the requisite group thing, you end up with no points, irrespective exactly. of the quality of your argument. That is terrible. Yeah. Oh god, I, that's the that's that, a nightmare. And you had to go, did you go through and you went through that yourself? You said 
I, I found that very difficult. I found that extremely difficult. You know, I the only way to get through that as somebody who did not come from that education background is to leave yourself at the door. Yes. Because you sit there wanting to argue with these things. What a great expression, and, but a sad yeah, one. And, and it's 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 a it's a really difficult thing to but but when you understand that you understand so much about French society and French politics and French policy mm. is that it create it's very hard to create skeptical thinkers or to foster skepticism of anything outside of the status quo. That makes so that much system. sense now. That exactly. really does. Yeah. The only thing I would add to that is is in the context of the UK system, if we could also try and have a root and branch reform of higher education whereby uh, Oxford PPE politics philosophy and economics gets banished from the curriculum because <laughs> you can make a fairly good case I think and many people have already made it that Oxford PPE is behind some of the worst facets in British politics that it's it's one of those sub subjects that gives you the illusion of knowledge and the illusion of expertise that is sort of a million miles across and about a millimeter deep yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but actually, like, coming back to that, that kind of the problems in of of this kind of lack of entrepreneurialism, and I think it's deeply rooted in all of this. That is something that makes me, when I look at the UK, that is something that we we need to avoid. Like I like I want people in the north of England to be able to feel like I'm a northerner, so I feel like I can say this without being condescending. Like I want people to leave school and be able to feel like they can achieve what they want to achieve if they don't if they can get the job they want within the parameters of, of their 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 abilities or if they if they can't if they want to start a business and they can start a business and the role of the government isn't to prop those businesses up it's just to get out the way, out their way. Yeah. and so much like like you know i know starting a business that so much of your time is spent on on and so much unnecessary complexity within the administration of the business and the state and so much of your time as a new business owner. So like I say, say you start a market store and you're selling clothes on a market store. Most of your time isn't spent making sure you've got the best garments at the best prices and knowing your customers. Most of your time is spent on your tax considerations and your regulatory considerations. Do I have the appropriate permit to operate this market store? All those things. And the, you want to i want to feel to come back to like the flavor of this next budget that the government isn't about that the conservative government isn't concerned about soaking the rich or or that the man in whitehall knows best but and allowing people who want to succeed to do so without that interference i want to just feel that way i want to feel like this is a government that genuinely like outside of the minutiae of the little of, of of the budget, I just want to come away with that feeling that this is a government that believes in the freedom of the individual and of of entrepreneurialism within within each person. It's funny. It's funny you mentioned the sort of regulatory uh, creep. The the funniest and 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 most difficult element of us setting up our business was getting um getting a bank account because although we had the capital. Uh, if you're running a fund management business, you need to have minimum regulatory capital to comply with FCA uh, regulations. And so you, we had this perverse chicken and egg problem whereby 
So yeah, I think we needed, I think it might have been 50,000 euros as, as minimum regulatory capital for, for our business. And we had the 50,000 euros or 40,000 pounds, whatever it was. Uh, but you need to have that in a bank account. We can't just arrive at the, the FCA's door with a suitcase full of cash. Or well, that's probably oh, for but you other people to do. But you need to have an account and you couldn't have an but account. You need to have an account and they wouldn't <laughs> open an account until you had the FCA oh license. God. So you had that ridiculous. I don't know how, how you survived or managed to, to open your business, Craig, but that's the problem we had for yeah, some months. We have had a huge amount of problems with 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 a very similar thing because we're an FX business, but we're not we're not speculative, we're not trading, and you're not you a know, bank. We're not a bank, and so we sit there, even with reasonably kind of like finance focused bank managers, and you walk. We've I've sat there with the with the FCA handbook in front of me, walking them through step by step as to why we're not a speculative fund, why all these things. And then we've been told to piss off and go to another bank. Uh, we had a, we had we had to move banks because out of the blue one morning, they uh, woke up and decided that we were a hedge fund. And I was like, I don't really know what you. And they're like, Oh well, because you offer FX hedging to clients. I was like, That's that's not that's not what's going on here. But yeah, yeah, and that's not what a hedge fund does. But I mean, that's exactly, a whole separate, yeah. whole separate thing. Bit, it is very it, being cynical about it. It is very easy to think that the way the entire system is configured is basically as a closed shop to stop the emergence of new small um, investment firms. In other words, it's yeah. to protect a cozy cartel of the existing players. Yeah, exactly. As, as well as and something that concerns me. And consensus as a business is, and in terms of kind of competitiveness within the UK, is this that it's become very safe to say say no? Like nobody ever got fired for saying no as a risk manager. Yeah. And and of course, like as a business, we we take very seriously risk controls. We take our client safety very very seriously. Um, but we also understand the markets and and. And I think there's so much damage that has been done from a regulatory point of view um, by compliance, not under, not fully understanding or not wanting to understand client needs, and instead saying no to absolutely everything because because you're never going to get fired as a compliance manager for saying no. But um, yeah, um, it's um it's fair to say, given your position. In, in in France, that, that the French are very traditional, especially with their their kind of um, their their high street. How have you seen the retail market change there on on the high street, and compared to the UK? Yeah, I think I think France is sheltered a lot more than the UK on the high street. Partly because um, we've got, I think the, the the actual property market makes a big difference, and and I think it's something that's that is interesting in the UK. And it's like like the property market has changed like British society. It's changed the age at which people get married. Like people don't get married. People tend to not want to get married or settle down until they feel they've got an abode, they've got somewhere safe, you know, also to raise a family. And if you can't get on the property ladder because a, you know, one bedroom kind of um terraced house is costing you three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Then it changes the age at which you you have children. I think it's going to change. It has profound effects on society. Um, in France, because there hasn't been that huge expansion of of property ownership of of property prices in the same way that happened in the UK, um, people have more disposable income. 
you know, do they, they may do they not... rent more than like like the Germans? Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, see. yeah, they are much. I, the UK, the UK, and and the US are are basically on their own within within the West in terms of this kind of desire for property ownership. Um, and because of that people have greater disposable incomes, they may not have the same wages, but of that, they they have more. And they, I think, the retail sector is more traditional here. People buy French, they buy local, um, and I think it's going to be a bit more saved from from the increase. And they also have a lot of punitive laws. They have lots of laws to try and hit the likes of Amazon here. Um, there's the loi referent that were passed that was passed a long time ago to to in the 80s to stop supermarkets from discounting books, but actually that has been expanded to to stop Amazon from um, encroaching on on traditional markets here. What do you think about um, that? Well, it's one of those things where, on the face of it, it's all very nice and and happy, but you can you can have a monopolistic happy your, your local butcher may be nice and happy and and smiley, but he's perfectly capable of price gouging you because he's got a, he's a monopolist. But this sounds this sounds a bit like the broken windows fallacy. Exactly, yeah. you it's, don't you don't get to see the businesses that never start because they're not able to. Exactly. I mean, but it's it's fascinating. Like, um, I've actually got a small stack of um, of copies of of Bastiat's The Law in French, and it's really hard to get hold of. It's a strange. Um, it's a um, so uh, you ma- you mentioned earlier the kind of um, um, all the people you were exposed to early on that gave you this kind of this Austrian this kind of appreciation of Austrian economics, and um, kind of scrolling through. Like the people you've had on this podcast, like Tim Evans, and um, you've had a few guys from the ASI and that kind of thing, um, um, Eamon Butler, etc. And um, I was lucky enough. So I, I was always kind of like instinctively. I've always been an instinctive free marketer. I've always, you know, but not necessarily. I was never necessarily in a formal way. I'd never really sat down and plowed through. You know the kind of Mises and the Hazlitts and read my Hayek until I was I was lucky enough to go on a um, there's a great thing organised by my friend JP Fleury, um Freedom Week, um, and they have guys from the ASI from um, from the Institute of Economic Affairs and they have like, these great speakers who come along. Um, they had um, like Tim Evans came along and that kind of stuff. And something that um, that my friend JP does whenever he goes to these things is he goes into local bookshops and looks at what's in the economic section. And you can always find canes, you can always find this stuff, but how hard it is to find um, like Road to Serfdom, how mm. hard it is to find these books on the bookshelf and the, de- the length you've got to go to. And I actually had to, and it's interesting in, in, in terms of Bastiat, like, you know, this great kind of grandfather of, of libertarian ideas, you know, and, and every time I read the, every time I read the law, I read writings of Bastiat, how applicable they are for right now. They don't feel like they were written at that time. They feel like they were written today. You know, the, in terms of broken windows, in terms of the damage done by that, which is not seen. And I actually had to get these from the UK. I had to get, I had to buy French translations of, of, I had to buy the French originals of Bastiat 
from Amazon.co.uk have them delivered to France because I couldn't find them in bookshops here. And that's kind of a perfect example and, yeah. and how, how unknown he is in his, in his home country. and Profit unknown in his own land. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. one, there's one, there's one thing. So my colleague Killian suggested this, and I think he's absolutely right that there's a sense in the UK now that the Brexit has basically sort of been put put to bed. That you know, that most of the storm and drang is now over. But his suggestion is that the people who lost their shit over Brexit are now are now going to go even more losing their shit over climate change. And I think he's probably right. And I came across a, uh, an amazing, well, amazing, but not in a good way. Uh, book that's just come out from a lady called Patricia McCormack, who teaches a prof- she's a professor at Anglia Ruskin, and she's just written a book called The A Human Manifesto. And the premise of the A Human Manifesto is that the way to solve climate change is letting humanity become extinct. Right. Discuss. Yeah. Well, that that's certainly one way of do, dealing. With it's the an, it's a I somewhat mean, somewhat extreme view, I'd say. Well, that's that's the thing about nature, isn't it? It sort of it adjusts in such a way that if any particular species becomes well, that's like Gaia, that's like Gaia theory that that the Earth is a self regulating computer machine, and that ultimately we'll just pull the plug on us and we'll all die. But you see, I, I don't see any I find... need to encourage that trend. The thing I always find interesting about these theories and the people who who um who promote them is that when they say like there's a, there's, a, there's a trend at the moment saying people saying that the human population is too high and that we should return to like a tenth of its current population. Like that's after, just, after you, sir. And then, <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that, you exactly, go first. The, the people who say this always think say they think that we ought to return to a tenth of the current population. They always think that they're going to be within that tenth. They never yeah, think they're the yeah. ones going to be wiped out. They always think it's going to be them, their friends, their families. You know, there's their... probably there's probably a French phrase: "Extinction, c'est pour les autres." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But if um, you look at if you look at say population growth across Europe, it's been it's been relatively stagnant, isn't it? I mean, people just aren't having children as they used to. So things have changed. I mean, of, co- of course, with the advances in med- medical technology, people are living longer, which is a different matter. But th- there is a, a kind of slowing in the growth of population in, in the Western world, perhaps not elsewhere, but it, it, will, it will happen naturally anyway. I mean, at, at the risk of, of becoming a broken record, you know, like I've, I've, got, I've got no problem with, like, I'm, I'm, like, I think we ought to be, like, care, we ought to take care of our environment. I think we should take care of, of you know, these things that have been given to us. I, and, and, but I think that the ability to better care for the environment, again, at the risk of becoming a, a broken record, comes from the individual, from entrepreneurs, from technological advances. And actually, Boris Johnson touched on these things in his, speech on the steps of, of Downing Street, you know, the, the, the big risk, obviously, about the, the green movement as it stands coming from the left is that it's much like the kind of road to serfdom, is that these problems, much like war, are so big and so great that only state intervention can, can, can stop them. And once you accept that the, that the state is so big and so benevolent, that it is capable of stepping in and, and solving something as as big as climate change well if it's capable of solving these big problems then it can also dictate what you can sell in your market store once you've accepted this premise you can accept that the state should also intervene the rest of your life and and i think it's important 
not just that it's important to to to, to fight that idea by saying that actually the individual private business private enterprise can do far more to to combat to, to combat climate change than than heavy-handed state intervention you know you look at crop technology you look at drone technology to to be able to more efficiently grow crops in, in in areas that wouldn't otherwise be able to i think much of that technology has had a much greater effect than than state regulations in some of these places if it is true that the french sort of implicitly see you know that they're far more relaxed about a big state than perhaps you know many of us here in the uk do you think that's symptomatic of a of a something of a lack of confidence in in private you know, enterprise. I, f- I find so. I find because for, because for the French economy isn't a basket case yet. I mean, it may, may yeah. be heading in that direction, but it's it's still a player. Yeah, exactly. But again, when it comes back to Bastiat, I think the, the French have bought off um, so many problems for now that they will probably have to pay for in the long yeah. term. Um, something that something that is something that I've always struggled with in France, and it's something that I've. Like, like I sit there and I t- I talk to to to, to friends and, and you kind of as you're discussing with them and the, the French have this strange thing where they they distrust the state they seem to distrust government and they they're quick to protest the government but at the same time believe that all good emanates from the state they believe that ra- that wage hikes must come from the state that protecting your old age in terms of the current pension reforms it sounds like cognitive dissonance. Exactly, so it's, like it's, it's this, this strange little system where you can get, you can sit down with somebody and, and you can talk to them about kind of libertarian ideas as long as you don't call them libertarian ideas, or you, you sit there and you say, well, perhaps maybe the individual knows better than 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 the, than the man in Paris and and all this stuff. They've got this great distrust of Paris and Paris is a catch-all term, as in in the way that we'd use Whitehall. Mm. And you sit there and you talk to them about all these things, but ultimately, when they suddenly realise that in fact you're tricking them somehow into into talking about into being a libertarian, they they snap back and rally around the flag, and this idea that the state, the statism is 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 French. It's, it's, it's a very nationalistic approach to to the to the state, and it, it frustrates me so much that you can get you talk to somebody, you get them so far along the path to to maybe agreeing with you, but then this idea that and so I, I think like a lot of a lot of the French problems have been bought off, you know. Like people talk about, yeah, yeah, I think I think these wage hikes and that because there's you've got such a large state sector by 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 increasing wages there, you've been, you've boosted consumer spending, that kind of thing. And so on the face of it, yes, French France is nice and healthy. But when you dig down beyond that, as I said earlier, when with kind of demographic problems, with you know a lot of the, t- the kind of employment problems there, I think France has bought off for the future a lot of problems, and I, it worries me because I d- I do love this country, and it worries me that they they are not ready for those things. I was just thinking back on the subject of of climate change, that a lot of problems have been s- s- kind of folded into the term climate change. Mm. I mean, the mm. climate is changing, right? The climate is changing, and it may be regardless of what we're doing. But for people who question that, it's almost like you get suddenly thrown into to the the camp of not caring about the 
the world and, and it's all right to pollute and it's all right to do whatever you want and just to mm. destroy rainforests, etc. Yeah, there's when so there's, many so many straw straw men arguments being wheeled out. I mean, if you look at, let's, let's take London for an example. If you go, we'll go back probably about 80 years or so, the, 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 the level of smoke and soot and crap in the air would have been astronomical. You wouldn't be able to see your hand in front of your face. And the filth in the river. And and exactly. And then we had that situation in the, I think it was the 1800s, where it was so cold that the... Fr- frost, frost fairs. We had frost fairs on the Thames. On the Thames. The Thames froze over and you could literally, for months on end, have, you could skate and you could, and, and the state of the water at that time as well must have been a lot worse than it was now because sewage didn't go into it then. Or sewage did go into it then, sorry. not and it, uh, Presumably it doesn't as much now. It's dealt with differently. Um, and so if you think about these things and then... I think you'll find today it tends to back up in Parliament. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you think about, if you think about that and, and then say, well, the climate could be changing, but that doesn't mean you can dump a load of plastic in the sea and it's all right. Mm. We're not saying that. People aren't saying that. You know, but to say that the government can solve the problem, can say that the central banks want to solve this problem yeah. is, is, is a yeah. very... It's like, what? Hang on a minute. What is going on here? It's weird. Yeah, yeah I mean, but I, I, but I do, I do feel like, I do feel like libertarians and in and people who believe in the in the power of the individual and the private enterprise have do risk approaching this in the wrong way. I think, I think they they risk not engaging in the war of ideas. In the right way on this issue, I think the, the, the war of ideas has already been won, though. So that the left won the war of ideas. Now it's driving around shooting the survivors. Well, I think, well, I, th- I, th- I think, I think, like, I think libertarians have got themselves to blame a little bit on that because it's. I think it is. It is. It is one of those areas where it is. It is a great battleground mm. for these ideas, in that you should be able to turn around and say. Because it has been so packaged neatly as a big state solution, big government mm. solution to a big problem, it's been such a great Trojan horse yeah. for so many other left-wing big government ideas, and it has been used very effectively. That yeah. if you pay more taxes, somehow you will improve the environment, and it has it has been a great little vehicle Burner. for that, great and, and the right Burner. hasn't engaged in the right way. I remember in Denmark, when staying in a hotel and paying the bill. For it and seeing a fresh air tax and i just literally thought this is a joke sorry what's this and it's a fresh air tax so there's a fresh air tax um in 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 denmark when you stay in a hotel i don't know if it's in the, across the whole of it but it was it was definitely in that area copenhagen so how long before we get something like that i mean it was just mind-boggling really I do. I do remember the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and there's, there's an account of a planet that's that's being eroded so quickly through whatever fault of its gravity that you know its mass is disappearing, and so it's vitally important that when you go to the toilet, you have to get a receipt. <laughs> <laughs> and on the subject of of the high street, I'm I'm kind of torn about how how things should move forward because on the one hand, I'm very much for you know, having a real high street where you can go in and you can speak to the shop owner and you can buy stuff, you know, and 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 that shop owner should be able to be supported by, um, well, actually, let me rephrase that, not necessarily supported by the government, but 
but uh, encouraged. Not, encouraged. Encouraged. Yeah. For example, you're like you've got local councils. They want to. They want to make money out of parking. So you can't drive to the high street that you want to go to without paying for a load of parking, and therefore they get money from that. So they're not going to want to give it up. But it also means that if you want to go to buy something from a shop, you've got to pay for parking. It's a pain, and therefore it means that you're not necessarily going to go to the shop. So you're going to use someone like Amazon. And it's great, it's fantastic, but they're not competing on the same level. So the, so the shop on the high street is going to have, uh, you know, m- more, more inherent problems with trying to create something real. Now, you might argue, well, that yeah, that's the way it should go and we should buy everything on Amazon and we should totally decimate the, the high street and it should be used for something else. That, that may be a valid argument. But I, I, I think that something doesn't feel inherently right when the system is so skewed against the shop owner and so pro um, the, the online retailer, which doesn't, doesn't actually sort of have to in, inhabit any, any real estate in, in the high street. It can be often a warehouse somewhere else. It just has a fantastic logistics. It, it seems to me, Paul, that one, one of the problems here is that the, the high street needs to raise its game and it isn't doing so. So, for example, it used to be the case. I mean, this is anecdotal and, and subjective, but it used to be the case that M&S, for example, Marks & Spencer or John Lewis gave superb customer service. And if that was the case, it's not the case any longer. So you can go to a, a John Lewis and suddenly find that there are, there are no people there, customer service people there. If they are there, they're not, as, they're not, they're not delivering that the best quality necessarily, and there's a reason why high street stores are dying off. That if if you've got all this expensive, you know, real estate stuff, if you're not delivering something to the the highest standard, everyone's going to migrate to Amazon. It's just, yeah. You know, it's as simple as that. So, so then maybe these businesses have to morph in the same way that say Waterstones is now. I mean, I'm speak for the Waterstones just up the road in Hampstead. Waterstones is now half a coffee shop as much as a bookshop. But the, the, there has to be a change to accommodate. No, you can't compete with Amazon if you've got bricks and mortar, so you have to do something different. That's the way it has to go for everybody. Isn't the interesting thing here, though, that the high, high street shop has got just what it sells as its business, yet Amazon has got so many diverse businesses with which mm. it can supplement its, its income? I mean, all, you know, brilliant business strategy, but if sales of books aren't going particularly well, they've got the, you know, video on demand. They've got their servers and the AI technology. So they've got so many different businesses that can support the underlying company. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just saying that as a, as an individual shop, John Lewis is actually fighting with a, with, or competing, I should say, with a completely different entity. One Mm. that has many different, um, uh, many, many different businesses that are, perhaps supported more so by lower interest rates than, than maybe, that, that they were. Maybe the idea of a full-service department store actually is just kind of just like an intermediate technology. It, it, it isn't destined to last. The stuff that ought to be on the high street is stuff that you can't buy on Amazon. I'm, a, I'm, I'm pro-change. I'm pro-technology. I love technology. I embrace it. And I think I, I got my Amazon account in 2000, so I was you know well ahead of um you know seeing where the where the online shopping trends are going to go but i'm just wondering whether once it's gone whether we'll say was was that a mistake yeah we missed that or or um, an, or or is this just how it should be i would see i would i i would i would view things slightly differently in terms of like i've got this so i live in a very very small i live in a very rural area 
And I am, I'm very much a country mouse. Like I work in a global FX business. I've got clients all around the world, but actually technology has enabled me to live in a rural area. And I think, I think technology isn't going to benefit the metropolis the same way it's going to benefit the countryside. I think, I think, I think technology is actually going to benefit rural areas in a very big way. You know, I, I don't think people's lives in the city are going to be changed structurally, fundamentally by new technology. I don't think being able to stream Netflix in ultra HD in the center of London is going to change people's lives when they live around Cornwall. the corner from five, from five different cinemas. Yeah. You know, I, didn't, I think people's day-to-day lives aren't going to massively change there. People being able to work from home because of their like fiber broadband connection in Islington are probably still going to go into the office in the city of London. However, I think it's actually going to, whereas maybe technology is going to hurt the suburbs, going to hit small, like, you know, medium-sized towns where you've got these effects on the high street. I actually, my hope as somebody who is, you know, I, I love the countryside. I love, I love living in a rural area. I like, I, I like going to, I like cities, but I like, I like rural communities. And I think perversely, these advances in technology are going to benefit these rural areas far more. The fact that you can run a business remotely, the fact that you can start a consulting business from Cornwall, from Aberdeen, from wherever. I'm actually hoping that rather than decimating communities, I'm hoping it's actually going to revive communities. It's going to mean that people, you know, aren't, people are able to move back to these areas after university or in their 20s or 30s. You're not going to have families leaving, which means schools closed down, which means bars closed down, which means communities closed down. Like I believe in the individual, but I also believe in the community in which those individuals live. But, and and I'm, I'm, I really am hoping that 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 is going to benefit those things. And I'm, 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 I, my view and, and, and the choices I've made personally, like I've chosen to buy, you know, you know, a 200 year old house in the middle of a tiny village in France is kind of predicated on this view. I'm, I, my hope is that actually the metropolis is going to become a question of, of taste and of choice. That mm. uh, yes, I'd like to be able to walk down Regent Street and go to these shops, but I don't have to because i can get all those things delivered here with amazon prime and i can rather than go into the barber shop on regent street i can just go on amazon and get those things so i think the metropolis is going to change people aren't and it hopefully is going to alleviate some of the, the kind of housing problems although obviously a lot of that comes from status intervention in in housing stock but my my, my real hope is that rather than then there's destruction of livelihoods in in and the high street, it is going to be a force for good in, in, in rural areas. And I think that gets overlooked sometimes. I think you hit the nail right on the head there, because as an individual who lives in London, it's a shame that you, you, you've got a shop that's like 100 metres away that you just don't use because you can buy it online. And, it's, um, yeah. and you might say, well, OK, yeah, isn't that fantastic? Well, yes, it is. But I bet that you go out and you see people in your local community and if you don't think that there's any value in that, there's, there is a theory that, that people who live in communities where they see more people actually live longer. So in other mm. words, it's, it's, it has a kind of calming um, life sort of lengthening effect on you to see lots of different people that you know and to acknowledge them and to feel socially part of something. So to be in a, in a city yet to, to not, not ever have to go out the door, great it seems on the surface, but actually 
to go out and, and, and meet people and talk to them and have that interaction is, is what you're losing by having that technology. And if you've got a community within a small village, then people act very differently in small villages because they know that, you know, you're, you're going to be seeing them more, more often. You, they act in a very different way, in the transient way in London, that, you you know, you bump into something, you may, you may never see them again. So people... it's, also, it's also a function of the quality of your neighbours, though, because mine are bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> what do they say about you, Tim? Well, they're never here. This is the thing. It's just like it might, it might as well be a ghost, a ghost house for for most of the day because That's these perfect, are perfect, though, isn't it? Well, anyway, let's, yeah, let's but move it's on. it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting point. I mean, absolutely. No, I'm with you. I'm I'm being facetious. For yeah, once. I know, and I, I know, but it's it's so funny how you can like in London um, or in a big city, you can literally not know people who are three doors down the road or up the road. Because the, orig- who they are. because the original community has been hollowed out by sort of you know internationalist uh, capital and labour. It's it's just <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's really phenomenal. But you go to a village and you, you see the same people all the time. It's it's um, it, so it'd be very interesting to see where it goes. I mean, it'd be nice if the the high street turns into areas where you know people can meet. So a more sh- social thing, not just coffee shops, but actually. Like pubs, place- are, pubs are coming back apparently, but oh, the, 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 you know the decline in the pub seems to have been tem- at least temporarily reversed. Well, that that's exactly my point about all of this. It's sort of they go in cycles, and you, great, you can get everything from your armchair, but then then actually, as human beings, we crave the real world. It's a bit like the the Bitcoin versus gold argument. People want real, tangible things. At the end of the day, they'll use technology, but that's why vinyl comes back because people download their music and then the computer goes and they've lost it. They actually want to be able to sit there with the record and look at the artwork and read the lyrics. There's a, a, a deeply human element to it. But well, I, I, I'm just glad that we, we've been able to do the, the podcast today because we're recording this for people's benefit on Sunday the 9th and Storm Chiara is raging. And I just want to, and we were worried actually that we might get a, um, um, a power cut because we had a brand out earlier this morning. Um, and I just want to give credit to, to Stan said airport on Twitter um, for the following joke, which is the wind is that strong today. We're getting reports of a Ryanair flight blown so far off course. It landed at the airport. It said it was flying to. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. Double thumbs up for that. So I think media picks. What do you think, Tim? Well, yeah, let's Craig, go for it. Let's go for it. So Craig, you know, the, you know, the drill. Do you want, do you want to go first? Um, so, so I feel the, the problem with this is you'd be far better talking to my wife about this. Oh, okay, so, go on. Get her Craig, on. Craig, Craig, Craig can you get your wife in, please. Oh, that's okay. But like, so, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm not good with movies, which is not a good way to kind Does it have to be, be movies? If you were on a desert well, island and you, you could only have like a book or film or, or, or something, a podcast, State of the Markets, to keep you occupied, what would you choose? Ah, you know, shit. Um... Well, let, um, let's go to Tim first, and then and I'll I'll give you mine, and then we can go back to you. So I'll give you a chance to think about it. Tim, what's yours? So mine is semi-topical because it's Oscars night tonight, and Paul has been banging on at me to to watch Joker. So I finally got around to it during the week. Yay! And I, have say, I have to say, is it's it's an excellent film, a deeply unsettling film. Um, so I, w- I won't give away any uh, any any spoilers, mm. but I think anybody will be aware from the 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 hype that it's it is a very unsettling film, a very unsettling depiction of um, a decline in 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 a, in somebody's mind. It reminds me. I mean, I think Joachim is also almost certainly a shoe in for for best actor, He's but awesome. we'll, we'll see. 
but uh, no, I, he is a great, a great performance. I, I was I, I slightly saddened to see him curtsying in front of uh, Prince William the other the other day. <laughs> uh, that was hilarious, but you know, I'm trying to fact... remove that from my mind. I've not seen it and exactly, it's... and yeah. the and the fact also that he proudly says he's going to be wearing the same tuxedo throughout <laughs> the uh, Oscar season. It's like. Well, how many how many bloody tuxedos does this guy get through anyway? Um, but no, in, in terms of things that it reminded me of, it's got a it's got a wonderfully achieved seventies feel. Yes. Um, and the seventies was a really miserableist decade. So the the two things that it reminded me of more than anything else, one of them was was Taxi Driver. Yes, it was. Which is it was kind of very to. dark, very dark, you know, sort of urban, gritty uh, film. And the other one is a, is a Darren Aronofsky film called Requiem for a Dream. And Requiem for a Dream is a, is a terrific film, but it's—I mean—in this case, it's a context in the context of sort of you know, drug abuse, but but you know, bringing advancing sort of human madness. But probably like Requiem for a Dream, Joker is probably one of those films I may not watch again because it's just you know it's just too creepy. But it's an excellent film. If you, it was basically written and styled on Taxi Driver, so good spot right. there. But it's also based upon the ideas of another film called The King of Comedy. Which yes, that's right, with Robert De Niro. With Robert De Niro. And if you get a chance to watch I'd never seen it. I th- no, is, I, is it Robert Pupkin or something? I've, se- I've seen it. Yes. It's, it and it's, 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 again, one of those difficult-to-watch films. I'm not sure I'd choose to watch again. I thought Robert uh, the De Niro. Other, the other thing I'd, I'd, give, I'd give Joker two thumbs up for is it's the first sort of comic-based... Uh, film I've seen that doesn't have the feel of a of a comic to it at all. It's yes. a it's a grown up film, yes. so it doesn't rely on CGI. Or I mean, I'm sure it uses some, but it doesn't rely on CGI to make its point. It's it's a, it's a film for grown ups, which is is rare these days. And the fact that it's on the basis of a sort of a, you know, a Batman backstory is, is or pre story or whatever is 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 is, is all more incredible, really. I, I like the way it shines a mirror back to the media, and it mm. makes some very interesting points. And I think we could we could probably go into a lot of depth discussing it so we're probably, I, I dare say we'll probably talk about it again we'll have to talk about it again but there, there's elements to that that i think are great but if you've watched it and you haven't seen the king of comedy i would highly recommend you you pick that up now and watch it get watch that because i think robert de niro and that is a fantastic it's a fantastic character just brilliant just shows how good an actor he is to play this sort of awkward fan of this uh you know this celebrity and stalk him so you, you just just look it up and watch the film i'm sure you'll enjoy it if you like joker i'm sure you'll you'll enjoy watching it although i think joker's a better film um my, mine for this week is going to be one that i haven't actually seen yet but i am going to be uh seeing it definitely next week and i'll report back on it but i'm so convinced like you know chernobyl that it was going to be great that um I, i'm giving it um, a, a plug on this podcast, and that is Parasite, which is mm. the South Korean black comedy thriller. It's been it, uniformly well reviewed, hasn't it? Oh yeah, it's got eight point six on IMDb. Okay, well that's that's fine. It's got ninety nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes and five out of five on Empire. Well, so like on the on the De Niro front, like I, I watched The Irishman last night. Oh, I don't really? know if you've both seen it. Last night, yeah. just last night. Yeah, I mean, yeah. my God, yeah, I've I've seen it. Have you seen it, Tim? Yep. Yeah. Okay, what did you think? Wait, so so it took me a long time to watch it because it's three and <laughs> a half it's hours long. long. Yeah. But, but, but not not just the time watching it, but the time to get ready to sit down and watch this movie. Like, took three. It took it took a while to be in the right kind of like frame of mind to sit down and watch this movie. Um, it was good. I enjoyed it. The problem is, I've I've been on a bit of a binge recently, and I watched. 
what my, my wife had never seen the sopranos before so i forced her to watch the entire of the sopranos i've bought the um, i bought the whole box set and i haven't watched it's it so yet. good yeah like, it's, yeah it's gonna be my if i ever get a long time off to 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 just binge watch it i would do it but that's i'm waiting is, is, is yeah, so it's supposed I, to be as good it's really good is it it is good, but I've, like, I've just watched this. I've, I've just finished watching Casino. Just finished watching Goodfellas. Oh, oh wow! So I've like been on a big binge, and like I, Casino, I think is the best of the lot in terms of like it's a good rounded movie. It's not too indulgent. It's got a good I, like Goodfellas. Like I don't like the ending of. I think it just falls off a cliff at the end, and it doesn't drive the point home. It doesn't fall I off a cliff. I like get it. Short. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, I like but. It. I, I, the thing about The Irishman is you come away feeling like it's more of a movie about Scorsese yes. than anything else. Yeah. Wait, yeah. So you've you got know, a very elegiac quality throughout it. Yeah, think. you feel like it's his atonement for glamorizing because he has he has his favorite cast of people. You sit there, like my kind of waffle at the start about my wife is a better person to talk to about this than me. She's got this great mind for like if you've got an actor on the screen, I don't know any actors' names, and if she can tell you who they were married to, who their kids are, who their kids were married to, she can tell you every movie they were in. She's got this great mind for knowing all these actors. I know, like, five actors, and one was Clint Eastwood. Like, I just, like, as if it's not Clint Eastwood, I'm pretty stuck. But, like, it, but you watch this movie. Clint Eastwood's not in this movie, but... Um, <laughs> um, but, like, you sit there, and he rolls out all his kind of favourite actors. You see them there. And you just feel a bit like this is about him. This is about his career. This is about, you know, he. these are all the people he's glamorized in many of his movies and they're not so glamorous in this movie. And it just feels a bit more about the director than it is about what you're watching on the screen. Yes, yeah, so I think he needed reining in on it, basically. But somebody, yeah, yeah, someone exactly. should have said, hang on a minute. What are you doing yeah. here? Can, what, three hours? And, and I don't think the the they did younger versions and, and they digitally de-aged the actors. I think that didn't work at all. It just, to yeah. me, it always looks really plasticky and unreal. And I prefer them to just use a younger actor who looks a bit more like them than trying to use shoehorn this technology. In. It was, it was gimmicky, wasn't it? It was, it, was. Very gimmicky. it still is. I... And it's a real shame that they're doing it. And, you know, I think it's a shame for, for other upcoming talent, you know, that you, that you're trying, why not just give another actor a chance? You know, that, that's... Well, I kind of got that feeling, like, it was funny because there was kind of a bit of Cuba stuff in there and I did get the feeling watching it, it was like this this old thing about all the, you've got all these kind of beautiful old automobiles and stuff still going around in Havana because they don't have any new stock of cars. And it felt a bit like Scorsese has got a fixed stock of Italian American actors, mm. and they're not making any of them anymore, or they're yeah. under embargo. So he's stuck trying to keep these old ones on the road rather yes. than bringing new talent. And it just felt like he'd, like, the, as if these are the only actors in the world. They happen to be getting older, but you've got to keep them on the road. It felt a <laughs> bit like he was like, yes. as if there's no more actors being produced anymore, or the US has put an embargo on Scorsese land, but they're not allowed <laughs> to, yeah, they're not allowed to import new actors. And so he's just stuck trying to digitally enhance or buff and shine all that doesn't keep them going keep them on the road despite all of that uh, though did you you enjoyed it did you yeah it was good it was i enjoyed it i enjoyed it i but i think it's what's interesting to talk about though is the kind of the fact it's a netflix movie mm. and the three and a half hour long thing is probably a function of that you know 
like halfway through the movie, we got up, took the dog for a walk, that kind of thing, came back. Would people have the appetite? Obviously, it was released in the cinemas as well, but basically but to fulfill people, people, the Oscar requirements. People feel quite uncomfortable. I mean, the last film I saw that was over three hours, they had a break halfway through. Mm. Yeah. Just so allow people comfort breaks and all the rest. So I think you're right. The Netflix can get away with it in a way that sort of the cinema quite can't. Why didn't they just make but, it into a series? I mean, I, I think, I don't think... Well, that's the other it, thing. I'm, I'm trying to remember who it was that said this during the week, but that's it. they're saying that it's the problem with Netflix is that... It, it, it's turning otherwise perhaps slightly <clears throat> slight concepts and it's extending them into series beyond their natural shelf life. There, so, there's, yeah, there's a, there's a new company it's, that's it's come out that, that is, um, is concentrating. And this is going to be an interesting insight into to where the trends are going. Are they going longer like series and, and longer form as, as Craig is, is, you know, alluded to or, are we going to shorter form Twitter or is there just a market for both? But this new company whose name escapes me is focusing on media that's no longer than 10 minutes and basically designed to work on your phone. Oh, so like micro films. Yes. So they're shooting it in a way that it works both as landscape and portrait on, on your phone, which is, I think a bit gimmicky anyway. I don't, don't see that that's a problem. Content content's the most important thing. But you can't watch short films on Netflix. They don't exist, or certainly not on the UK one. Maybe they do ex- elsewhere. But you can watch short films on Amazon Prime. So they've not embraced the short form format. And I think a lot can be done in a short film. Um, but they seem to have gone the other way with the Scorsese thing. Maybe it's just an experiment. Um, of co- And they're going to be, I think they're going to be fooled by viewing figures as well because I would watch it and I would say, yeah, I'm going to give that a go because it's Scorsese and it's, you know, it's got all these great actors in and I love all the films that you mentioned before, Goodfellas and and what have you, and Casino. So I want to see these actors again. But I was, I just like got so utterly annoyed with it because it just took so long to watch. but I wonder, is, is this going to change our movies going to get? So I, I saw some interest, interesting stats on on the length of, of songs that are released at the moment. Mm. Um, like the, 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 average, the average length of a song in the Billboard Hot 100 from 2013 to 2018 fell from 3 minutes and 50 seconds down to 3 minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, wow. And 6%, 6% of hit songs were 2 minutes and 30 seconds or shorter in 2018. And that's because of Spotify. You know, on Spotify, you get paid, you get revenues per play. So it's far more lucrative to have two three-minute songs than have one six-minute song. And as somebody who almost exclusively listens to music with an 18-minute guitar solo in it, Mm. I I struggle to see how you're going to fit 18-minute guitar solos into a three-minute song. So that's worrying for me. Who are your bands? Who are your bands? You're talking about guitar solos. That's That is... Come on, that's that's what it's all about. Who who yeah. who do you like? Spinal it, Tap. So, Spinal Tap. So, so the best the best guy I saw live recently was Marcus King, um, who's a big blues guitarist, and he's he's young. He's like twenty. He's early twenties at the moment, but he he's his knowledge, his kind of dictionary, the things that he references in his playing. He's so kind of erudite in his playing, and he's. If you get the chance to see him play, he's brilliant. He probably pay, played maybe three songs per hour, and they were just 
jamming away and it was it was great you know i'm a big allman brothers fan i'm a big like i'm a big clapton fan i'm a big queen fan you know and but but again it's a bit like listening to, it's a bit like so to be able to sit down last night and um and watch that movie like we've got a projector we've got cinema screen that kind of stuff and it takes like I've got to be in the right frame of mind to sit down and watch a movie. Does your wife come at half and... time and, and with the with the ice cream and you just yeah, go and choose the go. flavors? It's a shame they don't but, do that anymore in the cinemas. It's that was really but, nice. Well, if you if you've got a projector at home, you can do that. Yes. Uh, the same with music. You know, I think that's the thing about vinyl is that I don't I don't listen to like tracks individually on my phone on the tube or anything like that. I like to sit down and listen to an album and just sit there and listen to it. And I think maybe that's why this stuff's coming back. It's that thing that you take the, you know, you take the album out of its sleeve, you know, you've got your, your A side, your B side, you've got how many, you know, and you sit there and it's the active thing of listening to that music. And it's not throwaway. Take, uh, taking and listening to a fine vinyl album is like making love to a beautiful woman. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Yes, it, it kind of depends on you having seen the Far Show sketch, because otherwise I'm not going to dwell on this. <laughs> okay, no, I haven't seen it. I was taking that literally, but um... there's, a, there's a there's a character I can't remember his name, but he wears a shiny suit. And he works as a second-hand car dealer, and basically everything is like making love to a beautiful woman. So it's like <laughs> having your coffee in the morning. It's like making love to a beautiful woman. You've got to grind your beans and make them sweat, and it, it goes on like this. It's like. It was quite funny originally, anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, well, Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. If, oh, thank um, you. Too. I'm sure our listeners would want to drop you a line and it'll find out more about you. How would they do that? Um, well, we're on Twitter. I'm at CS Drake on Twitter. What's your CS Drake on Twitter and yeah, uh, and um, email address, or, website. Or if you if you want to, we're at LabardManagement.com. Or you can email me, craig.drake at labardmanagement.com. You can find me there. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, we'll put show notes uh, for people to look at. And uh, obviously, we put all those details there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Tim. There's been no brownout. So we've managed to get through it without there being any technical problems. Oh, my God. Where's he going? Uh Superb. Well, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you for subscribing and for all your likes and comments. It's been fantastic and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. <laughs>